My name is Pastor Russ. We're honored that you're here with us. If you have a Bible, go and open it up to Luke chapter 1. I've got a lot that I want to talk to you about this morning in this humid room. Praise God for some humidity. If you curled your hair, it is straight now. If you didn't iron your shirt, no need to worry about it. It's straight now because apparently that's what humidity does. It's like a, uh, you don't need to buy a steamer if you live in South Carolina because the humidity just takes care of it for you. So I'm happy. I'm happy about that. Luke chapter 1, um, we're going to answer the question that Mark Lowry, who wrote a song that's been uh, made popular by the Pentatonics and a lot of other groups that have covered it, we're going to answer the question that's asked in that song, which is, Mary, did you know? And the answer is yes. She knew. She knew exactly what she was getting into. Why? Because this story in Luke chapter 1 tells us that she was forewarned about what was to come. We've been in a series called Rise of the King. We've been looking at the need that all of us have for an authority that can establish peace and stability in our lives. We, by nature, in and of ourselves, uh, are prone to wonder. We are prone to leave the God that loves us and serves us and has laid down his life for us and to wander off into distracted things that we think will appease us apart from God. And so we've been looking at this uh, demand that Israel made all the way back in the Old Testament for a king and all of the broken ways that men could not be the man of God that would come when Jesus came to earth. You see, the Christmas season is really a celebration that God made the Son of God a Son of Man so that sons of men could become sons of God. And that's what we're celebrating. His name is Emmanuel. He's not the God who's over us or away from us or once came near to us. He is with us. And in this moment right now and in this season, he is here and he's active and he is able to lead you and provide for you in ways that you have yet to see or understand. Perhaps you've read about them, but you've yet to experience it. But the beauty of the Christian faith is it's not secondhand faith. It's not a passed down cultural religion. It's a firsthand faith. It's meant to be experienced in a firsthand basis. And so it doesn't matter what grandma says about Jesus. What matters at the end of the day is what do you say about Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? And for me, he is Emmanuel. He is my shepherd. He is my leader and my Lord. And he's my king. He's the king that we have waited for. And we now look forward to the blowing of the trumpet in his second coming when he will come and make everything right. And it's to that end that we long and look for that day where there's no more disease season, there's no more uh, uh, COVID warnings, there's no more flu, and there's no more death, and there's no more separation, and there's no more dysfunction between our family or this battle for unity that we have to fight. But shalom, life as it should be, that's a good strong Hebrew word, is restored in his second coming. And that's what we long for Jesus to come, and we don't want to put that off any longer. So if he's ready, I'm ready, let's go. But in the meantime... We live under a king and a broken kingdom representing the kingdom to come. And if we want to do that, it's going to require us having hearts that are living by faith. The scriptures teach us that it's impossible to please God apart from faith. And if you want to live a life in the meantime, until that kingdom comes and time is done away with and we live in fellowship and shalom with God forever, you're going to have to learn to live on the power supply of faith. That is confidence in what you've yet to see God do on the basis of what you've already seen him do. Faith is not case sarah sarah, like God's just in control and I've not seen him, but he's out there somewhere and we just trust in it until something happens good and then we call it God. No, faith is God has given us a written record called the scriptures of his faithful 
acts of service and love and power over time so that we could be reminded and informed and equipped with the ability in real time to stand in faith in what we've yet to see him move in. I want you to comprehend that. So so faith is not like you just need to make more wishes of God. Faith is not wishing. Faith is not like you you just bump into it in aisle six where you find Jesus behind Lucky Charm. That's not what I'm talking about. Faith is the track record of God which gives you reason in the face of uncertainty to hold fast. It's it's not, I've seen God move and I have no more questions. It's I've got questions But I've seen God move enough in my past to give him the benefit of the doubt to wait in faith until he comes through again. Does this make sense? Now here's what happens in a lot of our lives. Life has a way of throwing massive curveballs that none of us see coming. And Jesus said in Luke that it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. So what ends up happening when the unexpected happens in our lives is we get knocked off off our, our horse with it and all of a sudden stuff comes out. And you have to then deal with, where did that come from? Because there's a lot of stuff that we espouse when we're in control. There's a lot of stuff that we say when we're in church that then real life comes and tests, and what comes out is not the same answers. Am I making sense? And what you have to look at is, do I have the actual faithful heart within me that I'm professing in those seasons of certainty in the face of uncertainty, or is there something in the uncertain spaces of my life that is revealing within me, that's revealing within me a heart that is not as faithful as I want it to be? Does this make sense? So we're going to look at Luke chapter 1, and, and here's where we're going to get. Uh, the angel's going to appear to Mary, and we're going to look at what it looks like to have a heart of faith. Because what we see in Mary is a heart of faith in the response to this uncertain, how is this going to happen, Lord, moment in her life. Now, the Protestant people in the room get really uncomfortable when we start talking about Mary. And the Catholic people are like, praise God, she's going to talk about Mary, finally getting her due. Girl power. (laughs) Right? Now, let me be very clear. Uh, When God selected Mary uh, to carry the Son of God, It wasn't because she was special in the sense of she had earned it. It was a measure of grace that God chose her. And if you look at her posture and her response in this text, what you will understand is that what comes out of her is a heart of faith that that is surfaced over her uh, joy in the grace of God that would choose someone like her to do something so great like bring the Messiah into the world. She was not not in need of a Messiah, but she needed a Messiah to save her. In fact, she even says so much in her Magnificat, which is the praise that she uh, sings after going and joining with her cousin Elizabeth in our text. So let's get to the scripture before I get myself in trouble and preach the entire message referencing the scripture. Luke chapter 1, verse 26 is where we're going to pick up. Look at this with me as I get my notes open here. Luke 1, verse 26. Maybe. If I can find it. There we go. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her and said, greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. All right, let's let's break down some of the great things that are in these first first few verses. Zechariah, last week we talked about, 
was a man of God who was in the temple doing the ritualistic prayers in the time of his service, uh, offering the offering of incense as the people were praying for the restoration of Israel. His wife Elizabeth was advanced in years as he was, and they were past the age of having kids. They were, had struggled with infertility. The angel Gabriel appears, and Zechariah is knocked off his rocker in fear. He was in a holy place, but he didn't expect a holy encounter. It's something you and I have to be mindful of. We can come into the presence of God with little to no expectation that God would actually meet with us when he's Emmanuel, which means he cares enough to come close. And so Zechariah gets this promise from God that God, in spite of his barrenness, has heard his prayer and is going to give his wife, Elizabeth, a child, a son named John, which means God is gracious. That son will be the forerunner of the promised Messiah that's coming. Now, there's been 400 years of silence And after this time has come, because of Zechariah's disbelief, because he doesn't come with a question to how will you do this, he instead comes with, that is not possible, we're too old. He begins to bring forward all of the reasons why this cannot happen, instead of in faith or in questions going, God, how? I I, I know you can, but how can this be because of where we're at? So he doubts with his mouth, so he's muted in his mouth until John comes. What we're told after this story is that, Elizabeth has begun her third trimester. She's showing. She's in that last fun part of pregnancy where as the weeks begin to compile, the joy in her face will leave. And and there will come this moment where the wrath of God will enter her body to propel this baby out. And if you've ever seen a pregnant woman in the third trimester towards the end... You, you know there's a difference. They'll tell you around month seven, oh, I think I'm ready. No, you're not ready. You're still happy. You, yeah. <clears throat> I've, I've experienced this three times. Then there's this moment where like, like I, it, it's like just this, the, this anger of this will not be this way anymore. And, and then a baby comes. So she is nearing the end of her pregnancy. God sent the angel Gabriel. Gabriel's a major figure. Gabriel showed up with Zechariah. He also, 5,000 years earlier, showed up with Daniel and prophesied about what the messianic times would look like when Jesus would come. He shows up with Zechariah to say that they're coming. And now the angel Gabriel shows up with Mary in this village of Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph. So a couple things. Mary was likely between 12 to 14 years of age. Culturally, that was when women would enter the uh, betrothal period of time. A lot of people believe that she was 12 years of age, somewhere around that when the angel appeared. And here's why. Uh, In Jewish culture, there was a 12-month engagement period uh, and kind of a two-part engagement process that, that happened. So the first part of the engagement period was known as the Kedusha, which is a formally engagement time where you prepared to be married. So you weren't preparing for the ceremony. Most of us, we get engaged, and the reason we need eight months is you've got to get flowers and caterers, and you've got to get invitations out, and you've got to get plane tickets booked, and you've got to figure out what part of Hawaii you can afford to go to, and, and all those kinds of things. What they did is they were actually preparing for what life would be like after I do. It's a strange concept, but maybe in the engagement period, you should work harder at what comes after the first day than work for nine months on the first day with no plan of what's going to come on the second. I'm just throwing it out there. So they had a period of planning that would prepare them for the day that came after the engagement period was up. So it's a 12-month process, and in that time, 
the marriage, it's not like he put a ring and if you didn't want to get married, you just gave it back and it was done. You were legally married, so you would have to get a certificate of divorce if you were to separate, which is why when Joseph finds out she's pregnant and the child's not his, he decides he's going to divorce her quietly because he doesn't want her to face the ridicule and the shame that could come culturally from that happening to her. So the, you, it was a legally binding waiting period for the chupa, which was the second part, which was the formal ceremony where you would come before your family and your friends under this uh, banner of a tent thing called a shama, and you would stand there with the priest, and you would then be publicly joined, and you would have the party and the festival, and everyone would enjoy it. After the period of planning, the kadusha was done. So we're in that kadusha period where her and Joe are uh, engaged to each other, and they're waiting on that to happen, this angel Gabriel appears. Now, when the angel Gabriel appeared to Daniel, man of God, Daniel was terrified. When the angel appeared to Zechariah in the temple, Zechariah fell to the ground. He was terrified. The angel appears to Mary, and the text says, greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. Verse 29, it says, confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. She's confused and disturbed. So, so there's not a terror that's there. It, it means to say this. If you were to see a, an angel in the version that's described in Isaiah chapter 6, right? Uh, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And around him flew the cherub, the angels, with two wings they covered their feet, with two wings they covered their face, and with two wings they flew. Um, if you look at some of the other illustrations, they talk about their wings being covered in eyes. Okay, These are angelic, heavenly beings. If the, you were to see them in their glory, in your flesh, you're not thinking, oh, touched by an angel, there's Tess, this is going to be good. <laughs> you're, you're not thinking, precious moments, oh, fat, chubby baby, play me a harp song. You're, you're probably thinking, don't kill me. Okay? Uh, but there's, there's moments in Scripture where it seems that there is a way that they cover some of that glory of being in the presence of God in a way that's less terrifying to human beings. And this is likely what's happening with Mary. And the message from Gabriel is, greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. This teenage girl in the backwoods of Nazareth, in the middle of nowhere, God sees you. Uh, I mean, common not sticking out in public, God sees you. He's, he's with you. And this is a greeting that we see in other areas of the Old Testament. In fact, there's this guy named Gideon all the way back in the book of Judges who's hiding out during the Midianite oppression. Uh, they lived in the land during that time that God had promised them they would harvest every year their farms and their crops. And just as harvest season came, the Midianites would come through and take all of the harvest away. So the Israelites did all the work got all of the harvest in, and then the raiding Midianite army would come and feast on all of it. And so in the middle of this, Gideon has moved from uh, just thriving and expecting God to move to trying to survive. He's gotten into a survival mentality. Does this make sense? I just want to make it through this season. I'm not expecting God to help me overcome this season or for a breakthrough to happen in this season. I just don't want to die in it. Anybody been there? Okay, he's surviving. And in the middle of that, uh, the angel comes to him in Judges chapter 6, verse 11, and says this. Can we go there, Judges 6, 11? <laughs> then, <laughs> technology, the angel of the Lord came and sat beneath the great tree at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash of the clan of Abizier, uh, Abizier 
I mispronounced that, but forgive me. Gideon, son of Joash, was threshing wheat at the bottom of a wine press. Why? Because he was hiding the grain from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Mighty hero. What's heroic about hiding in a wine press just trying to get enough to keep your family alive? Mighty hero, the Lord is, same words that Mary hears, with you. Look at what he goes on to say. Sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all of this happened to us? And where are all the miracles our ancestors told us about? Can anybody relate to that? Like you hear, you come in at Christmas, the Lord is with you. And you're like, maybe. But I read the Bible and God does stuff. And I look at my life and it's like, does he do anything? Is he anywhere in that? I look at the Bible and it seems like every page I turn, I mean, let's disregard the fact that some page turns are like a decade of time, but, but I turn the page and God's answering prayers and he's at work and he's active. It seems like he's palpable within the pages of scripture, but I look at my circumstance that's been here where I've been trying to survive and I cried out like last Easter or five Easter's ago one time in a prayer to you and I haven't heard from you since and nothing's changed. Why has all this happened to me? Maybe you can relate. And where are all the miracles our ancestors told us about? Didn't they say the Lord brought us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to the Midianites. God can handle rated R prayers. He can handle direct questions. He, he, he's not asking you in your doubts to hide them as if they're not there. He's not afraid of them. They don't intimidate him. They don't make him run away from you. We get in more trouble trying to act like we're fine when we're not before God than whenever we're honest before God and we go, look, I'm not okay. I'm angry. I'm upset. I'm disappointed. I feel let down. Everyone talks about it's the most wonderful time of the year. It's the most terrible time of the year. Stop playing the Christmas music. Stop acting like everything is fine. Like, like I'm not all right. And that is music to the ears of God. He says in the New Testament, come to me all who are weary. Weary people are needy people. <laughs> Some of you are weary, but you try to act like you've got it together. Some of us were like, man, you just don't talk to God that way. Oh, well, I, last I learned by the blood of Jesus, we get access to talk to God, and because you didn't earn in your perfect speech an opportunity to talk to him, but it was the blood of Jesus that gave you access to it, then it's not going to be imperfect speech that's going to get you cast out of his presence. Talk to him. Be honest before him. If the Lord is with us, why has this happened to us? Where are all the miracles? Yeah, keep going. Next verse. Then the Lord turned to him and said, go with the strength you have. Gideon gets nothing else. Go with the strength you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I am sending you, but the Lord, Gideon replied, how can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh. I mean, like, maybe when we were stronger, maybe if you went to one of the stronger tribes before the Midianites had been raiding us for several harvest seasons, maybe then, maybe you've been in that space where it's like God could have worked, but not now, not here, not in me. My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh, and I am the least in my entire family. The Lord said to him, I will be with you. <laughs> this is an amazing story. It's an unexpected moment for Mary. 
And it's an unexpected moment for Gideon. And in it, the heart spills out. Because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth, what comes out of Gideon when God unexpectedly moves? Doubt. What comes out of Gideon whenever God uh, unexpectedly begins to move? You, you see doubt. You see cynicism. Perhaps you even see indifference. Uh, Sunday night, my daughter got really sick. I know it's, you're not supposed to talk about sickness and stuff right now because everyone freaks out and they're like, ah, plague. Okay. But um, she got really lethargic, and we've, we've had our go of it. I got COVID in August and almost died. My son got COVID in October and was in the hospital. Like, we, we've been through a ringer of sickness and all that kind of stuff. And so when Nora got sick, I was like, God, please not again. Well, by the time we got to the next morning, Morgan was sick with her, because apparently you can't lay next to a sick child and not get sick. So now she's sick. I'm like, praise God. Here we go. By that late night, the next night, I'm sick. By the next morning, my daughter's sick. Now, we've been tested. Make sure you understand that. We got the flu A, and we've been pumped full of antibiotics and all kinds of junk for like five and a half days now, and been cleared and are healthy. But around day five of the sickness, we've been working on buying a house that we could move into so that we could settle into this community and have community group and begin to do that. And we found out that overnight the interest rates jumped, I don't know, 0.75 the day before we signed. So I'm sick. I've not seen the sunshine in like five days. I'm literally in the window, ain't no sunshine when I got the flu. And now this dream of having this, this house that we thought that God was giving us was just gone in a day because we got priced out of it. Because we had a, I could explain it, but essentially the starting rate can balloon up to 0.6% over the next year. And then it's capped because we're doing a builder loan. Anyway, so unexpectedly stuff happens. What comes out of me? Doubt. Cynicism. I'm a bad dad, a bad husband. I'm misrepresenting Jesus. My parents are like, rest, just trust God. I'm like, I can't right now. And I'm a preacher. So if you've had a bad week, just know your preacher has said, I can't trust God within the last week. I was going through it. See, I, I, out, out of the unexpected, stuff comes up. And here's what happened. After about 30 minutes of worry and freaking out, I had this pause where the Holy Spirit came and convicted me. And here's what I felt. Where did that come from? Why is that in there? I know the man of God I want to be, but apparently I've got a long way to go to get there. Amen? You see, unexpected times reveal a heart of faith or an opportunity for growth. I want you to have a heart of faith. I want you to hear when the Lord is with you, because he is, a confidence that comes in his ability, not in what you've seen him do or not do. But to get there, sometimes you've got to go through seasons where circumstances reveal a heart of doubt. And God doesn't reveal a heart of doubt to condemn and dismiss you. God doesn't not use Gideon because he has cynicism and doubt within his heart. He uses Gideon in spite of his doubt. And on the other side of seeing God deliver him with 300 men, his view of God changes and his trust in God increases. And for some of you right now, you, you have a heart of doubt. You don't have a heart of faith. And you're a believer. You love Jesus. But you're going through some giants that are so big that you just don't know how to trust them in them yet. And you didn't know it until the unexpected came. 
When you're there, some encouragement I would give you would be from the heart of what comes out of this moment with Mary. Mary hears the Lord is with you. Her response in verse 29 is confusion. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, verse 30, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be, the very, he will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David. And he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. This is all Old Testament prophecy. Mary asked the angel, but how can this happen? I am a virgin. Now, how is that different? Well, I want you to see three markers in Mary's response here that reveal a faithful heart. And if we want to have a faithful heart, I think there's an example we can look to here. Number one, Mary has a humble heart. She's young. She has a childlike faith. She came from humble means. She's from the blue-collar town of Nazareth. In the John's Gospel, uh, one of the disciples that Jesus would call would say, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It was a small city in the backwoods of Galilee. Uh, the only reason it really existed was likely because of a Roman city called Sephorus that was near it. Jesus would be born and be from Nazareth, would grow up in Nazareth for a lot of his childhood. We know that his dad was a carpenter named Joseph. Many of us, whenever we hear the word carpenter, think about a man making tables and chairs and rocking chairs at Cracker Barrel. But they didn't have much wood in Nazareth. Wood was a uh, highly sought-after commodity. In fact, when Jesus was crucified, many of you have seen the scene of Jesus dragging the crossbar and the beam through the streets, but more than likely, he only had a beam strapped to his back, and they would reuse the same uh, bar that went vertically up and down at the, at the hill of Golgotha because wood was such in high demand that they would recycle that over and over again and leave it there on site. Instead, what you see, and you can actually see the old city of Sephorus, it's right by Nazareth. It's a city that's made out of stone. And so more than likely, Joseph built things out of rocks and stone. And this Roman city kept people in Nazareth employed so that they could make enough money to get by. But there weren't many people thriving in Nazareth. There weren't mansions and mega ranches in Nazareth. And Mary likely grew up in a blue-collar family and was getting married to a blue-collar husband and would live a blue-collar life of hard work with her family. So she was a woman that was familiar with humble means. She had grown up in humble means. And in her youth, she didn't allow the arrogance of her youth and her hopes to give her a false trust in herself or in her future. So because of her humble means, she comes with questions, not assumptions. Verse 34, she doesn't say, this is impossible. I'm young, this is impossible. She says, how can this happen? I'm a virgin. That's an honest question. You know, there's a way that babies happen. The bird grabs a bonnet with a child in it. Flies over, drops that child in, and the family receives it. And she's like, that, I, you know, I'm a virgin. That's not happened to me yet. How does, <clears throat> how, how, how can this be? It's a genuine question. It's okay to ask questions when you don't understand. Questions do not mean doubt. Doubt starts with, I don't believe it's possible. Let me tell you why. Questions start with, I don't know how it's possible. Help me understand how. There's a difference. Doubts, I have doubts. I have doubts where I struggle to believe things because of 
mistakes I've made because of uh, errors I've made in the past. And it's hard for me sometimes to overcome those doubts. But questions are genuine and good, and God invites you to ask questions. Christians should not be afraid of questions. And we've gotten a bad rap because we run from questions instead of run to the scriptures with our questions. She comes with questions and and not assumptions. She's coming from a humble heart. She doesn't doubt that God can. She instead asks God how he, how he will. There's a big difference. There's a big difference. Then in verse 35, we get this interesting statement to the answer. She has a humble heart, which is a heart of faith. If you want to have a heart of faith, you've got to humble yourself under the hand of God. 35, the angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you so the baby will be born and will be holy and he will be called the Son of God. Well, that explains everything. I mean, I'm, I'm sure every question she had got answered in verse 35. Well, she was like, well, of course. That's how the Holy Spirit, okay, that's what we're going with, Lord. Because sometimes even when God answers, you don't understand because we are a person that sees within time and within the constructs of time and, and God is outside of time and is not confound by time and is able to do the impossible in and outside of time on our behalf. And so she gets this unique answer and it brings us to a question, a question I'm very brief with and that's this, is the virgin birth essential to the Christian faith? Because that's a highly questioned thing. And here's what's amazing. A lot of liberal churches now teach against the idea of the virgin birth. That it's just this idea or construct. That the word virgin that's used in Isaiah chapter 7, which is where the prophecy is found. Isaiah chapter 7, 14, it says, All right, then the Lord himself will give you the sign. A sign so that you know the Messiah is coming. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. Now, the word virgin in Hebrew is the Hebrew word Alma. It can be translated two ways. It can either mean a woman of childbearing age, or it can mean virgin. So I want you to think about the context. It can mean one of two things. And by the way, in the New Testament, every New Testament author translates Alma, the Hebrew word, into pathinos, which is a Greek word that literally means one thing, virgin. So in in full agreement, Luke, a doctor who's writing this account... Matthew, a disciple who writes another account, Mary herself in describing what had happened to her, and Joseph, her husband, later in the book of Matthew, describes all using the same word, pathanos, virgin, meaning this was of a unique origin. There there are many uh, crazy birth stories that are out there. Back in the 1800s in Canada, a seven-foot-tall woman and an eight-foot-tall man had a child that was 21 inches long and weighed 24 pounds at birth. She had a toddler. That's unusual. That's unusual. In San Francisco last year, there was a couple that had a 16-pound baby. He looked like this in the picture. That's unusual. In the Old Testament, Hannah, who was barren and past the age of having kids, found herself pregnant by natural means, but had an unusual birth because of the timing in which it came. Same thing with Sarah, Abraham's wife. We, we, even in the recent times in the New Testament, we see with uh, Elizabeth, an unusual birth, but none of them are unique. The statement that's being made in Isaiah 7 is there's going to be a unique birth, and it's going to be signified by a virgin conceiving. Now, you tell me which one would be a sign. A woman of childbearing age got pregnant, there's your sign. Because that, that's, that's like every day. Or a woman who was a virgin who was pregnant with a child, would that stick out as a sign? 
So, so what I want you to understand is you may disagree with the scriptures, but the scriptures are clear, I believe, by stating that this is a virgin birth, and it's a sign of the Messiah, a sign of him coming into our life. Mary refers to herself as a virgin. Matthew refers to uh, her as a virgin in his gospel. And then Joseph, let's deal with that just for a minute for one more quick apologetic. You're a bachelor. You've been waiting your whole life to get married. You are matched up on ChristianTingle.com. And you're in your period of engagement, you're preparing and building a house and a space for you to bring your beautiful bride, and the two of you are going to build a legacy and a life together, and you find out she's pregnant. Your first response is not, oh, holy conception. It's more shaggy, it wasn't me. Now, I know there are great men who have... Stepped up, and there's that whole J-Lo movie, you know, when she was not Jenny from the block anymore, where she got pregnant, and that guy loved her and stayed with her through it, even though the child wasn't his. And there's great stories of men that rise up and do great things in the face of great adversity, but I would submit to you, you have to at least consider the apologetic that he is in this period of engagement, and he has the opportunity to break it off quietly. What keeps him from walking away, and, and walking away from the, the expense of a child when he's already a blue-collar guy that's going to struggle to get by? What? What's to keep him from walking away? Well, it says in the scriptures in Matthew that an angel appeared and said, the Holy Spirit has come upon Mary and she has conceived and his name will be Jesus. Stay with her. This is going to be a good thing. You're written, written into a really big story. And Joe's like, oh, okay. I would sub- submit to you that there's at least an apologetic to consider him staying in light of the announcement from the angel. So, Virgin birth, we have this word alma, it means woman of childbearing age or virgin. The scripture says in Isaiah chapter 7, you'll see a sign. I believe the sign would be that she would be a virgin and she would conceive and it would point to the Messiah. Uh, this points to the fact that Jesus is the greater Adam. Adam, our first father, sinned and failed and as a result all have fallen within him. But Jesus, the greater Adam, doesn't fail. He lives the perfect and blameless life that we couldn't live, dies the atoning death we should die for our sins justly, rises in victory over and offers salvation instead of death like our first father. He's the greater Adam, born not of the same means. You see, there's a lot of unusual births, but Jesus' birth is unique. Mary has a heart of faith, though. What do we see? We see that she's humble before God. She knows she needs a Savior. If you flip over to Luke chapter 1, verse 46, she has this thing called her song of praise, or a magnificat, and she says this. Listen to the humility that comes from her heart, and I believe that's a sign of a heart of faith. Mary responded in hearing about Jesus, the one that she was carrying, oh, how my soul praises the Lord, how my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he took notice of his lowly servant girl. It's humility. It's humility. Apart apart from grace, we as human beings do not belong in the presence of God, but because of grace, we enjoy his presence daily. For he took notice of the servant girl, and from now on all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one is holy, and he has done great things for me. He's done great things for me. So she recognizes who she is in her need of a Savior. Notice what she calls her son. The mighty one is holy and he has done great things for me. He shows mercy from generation to generation to those who fear him. His mighty arm has done tremendous things. He has scattered the proud and the haughty ones. She knows her need for a Savior. So if you want to have a heart of faith, then what spills out is humility, not arrogance. If you've lost a heart of faith, the way back perhaps is to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. 
Stop looking and living independent from God and come back to a declaration of dependence upon God. There's a lot of things I want to be independent from. I don't need you to pay my bills. I don't need you to help me with, I, I want to be independent, you know. I, there's plenty of rap songs I could sing right now about it. I-N-D-E, all right. But my point, my point is this. I am dependent upon the provision, leadership, and presence of God. And that is where I am meant to be. There's a humility that comes from it, and it's an attractiveness to the world around us. If you want to have a faithful heart, you've got to have a humble heart. Number two, if you want to have a faithful heart, you've got to have a reflective heart. Look back at verse 36 in chapter 1. In hearing this news, what's more, your relative Elizabeth has become pregnant in her old age. People used to say she was barren, but she has conceived a son and is now in her sixth month. For the word of God will never fail. For the word of God will never fail. If you believe that to be true, then everything else you read in the Bible is easy to believe. But if you do not believe that to be true, everything else in the Word of God will be difficult for you to understand. Here's what happens. Mary, hearing this, doesn't understand it, but considering that it's an angel standing in front of her communicating what she is hearing, she reflects and thinks upon this. And the angel says to her, just in case you later doubt this or think it's a dream or attempted to question it, here's what you need to know. Elizabeth. Your cousin, who's advanced in years and past the age of having children, is six months pregnant. To remind you that what you are hearing, though difficult to understand, is real, is possible, that God is able because God has said it to be true of her, and now what he has spoken to be true of you will be true as well because God's word, when spoken, doesn't fail. It never returns void. It's always trustworthy to build a life on. You can take it to the bank. Like you can trust in the fact that Jesus will return and set things right. Why? Because he said he was coming the first time. He did and he delivered. What makes you think that he won't deliver now because a few thousand years have passed? Are you tracking with me? So Mary has a reflective heart. She has a track record of what God's done to remind her and give her confidence for what he is yet to do. And she keeps that in view. She keeps that in view. Look at Luke chapter 2, verses 19 and 51. Luke chapter 2, it says this about the reflective heart. But Mary kept all these things in her heart and thought about them often. What's happening? As she's learning more about Jesus, as she's seeing Jesus' work, she's remembering, she's marking down what she's seeing. Why? Because there will be days that will come where things that she won't understand. Like the day her son, who has been heralded and worshipped everywhere he has gone, all of a sudden is turned to be crucified in a moment. And in that moment, she may be tempted to think, has God lost control? Did he not mean what he said he was going to mean? But I would submit to you that a faithful heart is a reflective heart that writes down what God has done so that when you stand in what you've yet to see him do, you remember it and are emboldened by it. So she hid these things in her heart and thought about them often. Verse 51, after he had stayed at the temple. I mean, some of you think you've had a rough year being a parent. Have you lost the Messiah? Any one of you lost the, a child that was in your care that was Messiah? If not, I would submit to you you're doing better than Mary and Joe did. They left the Son of God in the temple and didn't know where he was. Then he returned to Nazareth with them all and was obedient to them. And his mother stored all these things in her heart. If you want to have a faithful heart, you've got to have a reflective heart. That means you remember what God has done. In the book of Judges, God parts the waters for the people of God to go through into the promised land that he had promised that they would go into. You tracking with me? And in it, he says, pick 12 men from the tribes of Israel and every one of them go to the middle of the water as God has parted this water and pick a rock that represents their tribe. 
and build a monument out of those 12 rocks so that when the next generation comes and they say, what's that? You can look at them and remind them of the faithfulness of God on the other side that brought you to where you're at today. You see, remembering what God has done has a way of keeping you faithful in the face of what you've yet to see him do. If you want to have a faithful heart, you've got to have a reflective heart. Mary reflects on the work of God so she can walk in faith when she's yet to see God move. Number three, if you want to have a faithful heart, you've got to have a submissive heart. You've got to have a humble heart, a reflective heart. You've got to have a submissive heart. Look at what she says in verse 38. Zechariah hears your wife Elizabeth's going to have a baby, and he doubts, speaks doubt with his mouth. Mary doesn't understand. I'm talking about a teenager. But she, she knows she's experiencing something holy, that, that God's at work, and there's reason to believe in spite of what she's yet to see. Her response, verse 38, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. I don't know how, but it's yours. I don't know when, but it's you. I trust you. I mean, this is the whole Christian life. The entire Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, is God saying, I'm God. You've been made in my image. You've been created to be in fellowship with me. Trust me. And people are like, yeah, seems cool. Maybe later. And then we wonder. And then things don't go right. And then we're like, is there a God? Where is he at? What is he doing? Why isn't he trustworthy? And this, this lingering of coming close and wandering away, it's what Satan does over and over again. It says in the book of Job that Satan came to present himself before God because he's still under the command of God. Don't think that he's a rival to God. He's a defeated, a, a defeated fallen angel. Satan comes and presents himself before God. He comes into the presence but then walks away from it. Many of us do the same dance here in the south. We come before God on Sunday, drift away on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday. And then we skip a Sunday but then we'll come back after football season. And then we wonder why our life isn't filled with peace because you don't know the prince of peace. You're not walking with him. We wonder why our life is powerless because you're not filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. We wonder why there's not good news coming in and through our life because you're not walking in the gospel and the good news that every bit of life is built on. Enough of this drawing away and coming close stuff. Instead, Let's submit to the work of the Lord. Luke 9, chapter 23, this is the verse that hangs in every house I've ever lived in, and it will hang in the house that hopefully one day, by God's grace, we will build. It says this, Jesus, looking at a man, says, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself daily. Christian faith is not, you're 70% there, God's going to give you the 30. The Christian life is, apart from God, your work, your effort can do nothing that will honor and please God. You need all of the Holy Spirit at all times in you in every circumstance, conversation, and relationship. So take up your cross. Die to yourself. Do not live by your power. Do not live by your means. Do not live in self-sufficiency, but live in faith dependency upon God. And when you do that, you will be an overcomer. When you do that, you will be empowered. 
When you do that, you will have a peace that surpasses understanding. When you do that, you will be the people of God that you've been created to be, the light in the darkness that he's called you to be, the salt to the earth that you've been created to walk in. But it comes from a faithful heart that often is revealed in unexpected times when you get knocked off your horse and you're going, where did that come from? So do you have a faithful heart? Is it, if, if it is, it's humble, it's faithful, and it's submitted. And if it's not, it can be faithful again by being humble, getting faithful and submitted to the work of God. Our prayer team's here. We'd love to pray with you this Christmas season. We'd love to give you an opportunity to respond to what you've heard, what your next step would be or could be. But as we sing this song about the faithfulness of God, I would invite you to respond to the prompting of what he's asking you to do. If you need to give your life to Jesus, come. If you need to repent, come. Bend your knee and repent. If you need to be baptized, come. Be baptized. You do whatever the Lord leads you to do. In Jesus' name, amen.